you'd like to read along with me, I'll be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer. For they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, except Jesus alone. The Gospel of Mark. I really like Homer Simpson's um, summation of the Bible. Here's the way he put it. All the people are a mess except this one, one guy. You ever think about the Bible that way? I mean, it's just a mess. And, and when we come to this point where uh, we've been, just been reading, it, it's sort of a mess. Except for this one guy, Jesus. I mean, all the disciples don't seem to get it. The Pharisees certainly are fighting everything. And so Jesus come to this point where he's got to, he's got to somehow prepare his disciples because they're really confused. I mean, the pinnacle of the gospel, Mark has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But Jesus turns around and says, I'm going to cross and you're going to cross with me. And for the life of them, they could not put those two things together. I mean, they saw the glory of Jesus being the Son of God, and they saw the suffering of the cross, and, and they wanted the glory. They wanted the exaltation, but they didn't want the humiliation for Jesus or for themselves. And so they cannot put it together, and they're struggling, and Jesus knows he's got to give them some help. Because disciples need help. You might be at the same place. I mean, you, you became a Christian, you know, and you, you, you embraced all the promises of God and every good thing that he was going to give you and salvation and going to heaven and awesome. But you've also faced that this life is full of suffering and that everything's not so easy. And that not only did Jesus have to carry a cross, but you've been called to carry a cross. And, and you might be struggling today with how do you put those two things together, the glory of God and the cross and that's what this message is all about. Really, we're going to talk about two different stories this morning. The first story will say this, that the disciples of Jesus need hope. And the second story is going to tell us this, disciples of Jesus need power. How do we navigate this? You see, Jesus knows his disciples are struggling, so he decides to call them to the office. The first office he calls them to is up on a mountain. And that seems to see, be a place that God loves, loves to meet people. 
They're saying to Jesus, this is not what we signed up for, Jesus. I know you say you're the Messiah and the Son of God, but it doesn't appear that way to us. And Jesus says, okay, guys, let's take a time out. Let's go up on top of this mountain and let me show you who I am. And we just read the story of the transfiguration. And Mark is so descriptive of this that Jesus is transfigured and he's glowing white. I mean, Mark says he's cleaner than anybody could, he's whiter than anybody could bleach. Maybe Mark's had some bad experience of the cleaners, you know what I'm saying? But, but not Jesus. I mean, so bright. Now, we've seen this happen before on a mountain. Moses goes up on a mountain, and, and, and he's bright. But there's a difference in Moses' brightness and Jesus. Moses' brightness was a reflection of God. The words used here for Jesus' brightness is it's something that, that comes from within. His holiness pours through him in such a bright way. And so they're up on that mountain, and appearing with Jesus is Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the great prophet. They're having a conversation about Jesus and pending death. Now, if you, want, if you want my opinion here, this is the greatest miracle besides the resurrection in the New Testament. Now, if you go to any Bible encyclopedia and look up miracles, you will not see this one. But this is an incredible miracle. Why? Because in the middle of this, he's taking his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, and they have fallen asleep, and they wake up, and they see God in his full glory. You say, what is the miracle? The miracle is that they don't die. I mean, God is so high voltage. He's told people forever, if you see my face, you're going to die. And Moses had begged to see God. And God said, Moses, you can't handle that. Let me do this. I'll pass in front of you and you can see my backside. You, you can see that. You might can handle that. But here they come and, and they're up there and they see it. And, and the Bible says they're afraid. Wouldn't you be? Everything they've heard is you're going to die. And, and they're fearful. And, and again, Peter's fumbling around. And of course, Peter's going to have to say something. And so Peter speaks out and he says, oh, Lord, it's... It's good, good for us to be here. And then he says, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. The tabernacle was a place of worship. Again, Peter's nervous. The Gospel of Luke puts a parenthesis behind that statement. He did not know what he was talking about. Wouldn't you hate that one of the few times you ever said something big time enough to get in the Bible, they put behind it, he don't know what he's talking about. That's Peter. He's scared to death in the midst of this scene. After he says this, the Bible says this cloud envelops him, a symbol of the presence of God. And out from the cloud comes his voice that says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. What, what's, what's that saying? It's, it's Peter's second rebuke in two chapters. He's been rebuked, rebuked by Jesus back in chapter 8. And now he's rebuked, rebuked by the Father in heaven who says, Come on, Peter, do, do you see what I want you to see? I want you to see that Jesus is the one glowing. Moses was a wonderful lawgiver. Elijah, a great prophet. But you do not worship them. You worship Jesus. And then the scene closes out. And it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And what God's saying is, Okay, guys, I know you're struggling with this whole cross thing. And I know you're not seeing the glory. But right now, I want to give you the glimpse of the glory. 
I want you to see God in his fullness and in his glory. And I want you to stop and I want you to worship. You see, disciples have got to have hope. Now, if you're taking notes, let's write down a few things right here about this hope that God is bringing these disciples. First of all, they've got the presence of future glory. That gave them hope. This is the way it's going to look. I know this life is difficult. I know there's, but there's going to be future glory. Second, there's the hope that Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. A tabernacle was a place of mediation. God was so holy, sacrifices had to be offered so that you could even approach even the backside of God. But now Jesus is that perfect sacrifice and there are no more sacrifices that are needed. And then this hope, these disciples, they believe and they experience. What's God trying to give them here? He's trying to give them a worship experience. It's not enough just to have the data. It's not enough just to have correct information. You've got to experience God. Oh, Peter understood the facts. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, but he had not connected to his heart. And so God says, let me give you an experience. We understand that. Maybe you read a review in the paper of a great restaurant. Maybe even a friend tells you, wow, if you go there, the food is scrumptious. I mean, it's just, just it's, it's perfect. And that's good. You've got the knowledge. You've got the data. But you don't really experience it till you go to the restaurant and you're in the ambiance and you taste the food and you walk away and you go, wow, that was awesome. And that's what God wants to happen with those disciples and with these disciples. It's not enough just to have the facts. It's not enough just to believe the right things. You've got to experience it. These disciples needed to take the longest journey of man. It's 18 inches from your head to your heart. See, a lot of us, we got the head knowledge. We know a lot about the Bible. We know the facts about Jesus. We know the Ten Commandments. We know the two great commandments. Awesome, good deal. But, but, but Jesus knew for those disciples to survive the suffering and difficulty and loss of life, that they were going to have to have more than that. They couldn't just understand the facts. They had to experience the Savior. And so God puts them in this worship experience so they can experience that. Listen to this definition of hope and how it comes in worship. Hope comes in worship. Worship is the preview of all that our hearts are longing for. Worship is the preview of all that our hearts are longing for. You know, guys, sometimes we come into an assembly like this and we say, well, let's come in and let's go to church. And then at the end we go, we're about to step back into the real what? World. That's a lie. This is the real world. You see, in worship, guys, we're reminded that everything we long for is true. We're reminded that we're unconditionally loved. We're reminded that God is a God of power and resurrection. 
We're reminded in this crazy world we live in, yes, there's suffering, and yes, there's a cross, but one day there will be glory when we are glorified with our Savior. And it's in this kind of assembly that we experience the real world, where you can see beyond just the data and the facts and the difficulties of life, and we assemble on a Sunday morning and go, here's what we really believe. But in worship, it's more than we just believe it, it's we experience it. This is the part where we need to move from head knowledge to heart knowledge. And so today we're going to have an exterior, extended period of worship right now. And here's what I want to say to you. We are about to enter the real world. As you remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that ought to be the greatest reality in your life. The hope that you have in the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus. The hope that you have in the resurrection that, oh yeah, this life is difficulty and we, we, we lose people we love, but this life lasts about an hour and a half. And then we're going to be together. And my body might be hurting right now or my heart might be hurting right now because of rejection. Or my life might be in shambles and my finances. But, but here is the moment where we acknowledge and we experience that that's not the truth. That's not the whole truth. It's part of the truth. And so this block of time we're about to have together, could I encourage you to release yourself in worship? Guys, if all you come here today and you get is more head knowledge, you're not going to make it. You need some heart experience. You need the next 15 or 20 minutes to experience the presence of God. And that will allow you to make it through the suffering to the glory. So, Paul, would you lead us? As we experience this, let me challenge you guys. A long time ago in this church, we fought some pretty tough battles so that you could be free to be expressive in worship. And what we said in those early days is some people will be expressive in different ways. That's all cool. But let me ask you this morning, as you focus on the reality of God today, would you express yourself in whatever way you're wired? Would you let it out no matter what it sounds like? Would you for a moment in this crazy world we live in allow yourself to be lost in worship? And I guarantee you God will bless you. Let's go back to Mark chapter 9. The disciples have to come off the mountain. They've had that incredible experience with God and, and now they've got to go back into the unreal world. And, and Jesus has got to go from basking in the glory to dealing with troubled and confused people. And so they come off the mountaintop and they go in the valley. You and I, we will have to leave this place today. We'll walk through those doors. And we'll go back into a life that's full of difficulties and challenges and even suffering. And God wants us prepared for that. So let's look at Mark chapter 9. Let's start reading now in verse 14. See this next story. When they came off the mountain to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Can you imagine after what they've experienced? Now they go back in the middle of this mess. The church cops are out. They're arguing. The disciples are failing. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Jesus has like rock star status. 
It's like a group of teenage girls running after their famous or favorite artists. Jesus comes off the mountain. They come to him and he says, what are you arguing with them about? A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. What a scene. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It is often thrown into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. What a line. Okay, Jesus, it's been a mess the boy's whole life. But if, if you could do something about that. I love Jesus' reply in the next verse. If you can, said Jesus, everything's possible for those who believe. Now, your Bible has a question mark there. If you can, I think there belongs an exclamation point. I think Jesus said, who, who, who do you think you're talking to? You're saying to the Son of Man, if you can do something about that, do something? I mean, that's like going to LeBron James and saying, if you can dunk a basketball, would you do it? Or to Peyton Manning, if you could throw a touchdown, would you do it? Or to Paula Dean, if you could cook a good meal, if you could, would you, you please put that out there for us? Or, or you go to Dale and say, if you could really belt out a song, we'd like to hear it. And they look at you and go, you're, you're, who, are you, who are you talking to? My goodness, I'm LeBron James, I'm Peyton Manning, I'm Paula Dean, I'm Adele. What do you mean, if you can do it? Everybody knows I can do it. So Jesus says back to this guy, come on, man, don't say if you can. Everything is possible for one who believes. And then I love how the man comes back. The man comes back to Jesus, and he says to him, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Read that with me. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Say it with me again. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. My friends, I believe that is one of the most powerful and needed prayers in all the Bible. This guy said, Jesus, I've heard about you. I've got some belief. I, I do believe. It's not perfect. But, but help me with my unbelief. How many of you in this audience have ever prayed that prayer? Raise your hand. I don't know if it's a prayer in the Bible, but I've prayed more. Well, I believe you. I know who you are. I've just worshipped you. We've talked about your power. We've talked about your love. We've talked about that you can overcome anything. That you're victorious over death. That you're God. That you're alive. I, I, I believe those things. But I'm facing a difficult situation. Please help me with my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed in him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. What a tender moment. But Jesus 
took him by his hand, lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. And now Jesus got to debrief his disciples. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. You know what's fascinating about this story? Have you what we've been studying? Mark chapter 6, the disciples have been casting demons out. And now they can't do it. I wonder, do you wonder, have they become a little cocky? Have they become a little self-assured? Have they started trying to do it on their own? You see, what, what Jesus is trying to say is, to make it through what life can throw at you, disciples must have power. Now, take notes again with me just for a moment. Here's what these disciples realized in this point. They realized they could not do it on their own. Maybe they've been trying. Remember when they first went out to cast demons, man? They were praying heavy, and they've cast out so many demons, they finally get to this one, and they stop praying. They've got confidence in their ability to cast out demons outside of the power of God. It will not work. Because we've got to face it, guys. We cannot do it on our own. If we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ and what we're going to face, it can take power from God. The next point I want you to realize, you don't have to have perfect faith, just humble helplessness. You know, sometimes I think, God, you're never going to do powerful things unless I have 100% perfect faith. Uh, I know a theology out there that says your prayers and whether they're answered are completely dependent on how much faith you have. And people who will say, if you pray for someone's healing or someone's depression to leave, or you prayed about something going on in their life that it didn't happen, that somebody in the room didn't have strong enough faith, which is a really dangerous theology, because it puts the power in us and not in God. And this story teaches us, you know what? Jesus didn't get offended when the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. He didn't say, well, we'll come back to, with your son later when you got enough faith. Oh, you got to little right now. I'm a little bit offended that you don't completely believe in me. I can't do anything in your life until your faith gets to a new height. No, Jesus teaches this. If you have got faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's not the amount of faith you have. It's the one you put your faith in. And so we've got to realize, guys, for God to work in our life, we don't need to be perfect. We just need to be humble. We need at times to come in our helplessness and say, God, do something. Heard a young man say, the other night, pray for me. Here's a group wanting to pray for him. And God was about to pray over him. Then the kid started trying to talk himself out of it. He said, well, I, I don't know if you ought to pray for me. Um, I've only got about maybe 20% faith. And it, just, it, it probably is not going to do any good. And I love when the other guy said to him, oh, no, man. Man, if you 20%, God could work with that. Pray. Don't wait till your faith is perfect to pray boldly. Pray. And then realize this. Some things can only happen by prayer. Because we are too into our own ability to figure things out. Where the truth is, big time things are only going to happen by prayer. Are we like the disciples? We forgot it. Maybe there was a time in your life, man, where you were humbled and, and you knew you couldn't do it on your own and you begged God to save you and he saved you and you begged God to use you and he used you. 
And then you got some experience, you know, and you, you started doing pretty good, you know. You used to teach a class and never walk in the classroom without praying about it. You used to preach a sermon and never step up from that second row before you'd prayed. But you start thinking, you know what, I, I sort of got this thing down pat. You used to lead the church thinking, man, the only way this church is going to be anything is by God. Uh, and then now you think you're going to lead it by your own knowledge and ability. And God says to you, and he says to me, he says, let me tell you guys, there's some things that are only happening in your life through prayer. You try to do it on your own, and you are going to fall flat on your face. But you call God into it, and incredible things can happen. Let me tell you this, friends. Power comes in prayer. And I love this quotation, Mark, this quotation by Albert Lemons. Prayer is man's way of bringing God into history. You know, I think we're just like this guy. Our, our life's all messed up or there's things we don't understand and we come to God and say, if, if you could do something, that, that'd be cool, God. If, if you could. And, and Jesus says, if you can, my goodness, who, do you, who are you talking to, man? But guys, when we pray in faith, what we are doing is we're bringing God into the history of our lives. Now, sometimes God is going to say, yes, like he does here. Other times, God may say no, like he said to the Apostle Paul, but it's thorn in the flesh. I'm not, I'm not answering it. But what I'm going to do, Paul, is I'm going to be with you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use your weakness and this difficulty to mold you into who you ought to be. But either way, whether God's answer is yes or God's answer is no, I'm not going to do that. The, the power is in the presence of God. Because he, either this, when you go to God and pray, he is either going to change your circumstances or he is going to change you. One way or the other, he's going to change things. And so, guys, we must be a praying people. I want to give you a real specific challenge this morning before we close out. Here it is. Pray at least 15 minutes a day, uninterrupted for the rest of this week. I mean, just for this week, could you, could you just devote... 15, turn the cell phone off, the TV off, get somewhere by yourself in a closet like Jesus says, and pray just for 15 minutes. Now, I know some of you are going, buddy, that is, my goodness, I pray 30, 40 minutes every day. And some of you may just up at 15 minutes. But I would guess if I could, the majority of us, oh, we pray on the run. That's how I pray. But when do I really just stop, get still, everything silent, and pray 15 minutes uninterrupted. I'm saying talk to God. Listen. Be silent some. He might speak to you. I mean, you go in the midst of that, and you just give God some uninterrupted quiet time. And what I'm going to tell you is you're going to learn to love walking that way. And your life is going to be different because you're going to be led by God. And maybe all you can pray over and over is, Lord, I got this terrible situation. I believe, but please help my unbelief. And God's not going to walk away from you and say, you're crazy. Come back when you've got more faith. God's going to say, I can work right there, man. I can take that mustard seed of faith you've got, and I'll do some great things in your life. But would you take that challenge? Would you, I, I, I think it could be life-changing. Lincoln and I, as many of you know, were in California this past week on a, a one-week father-son retreat. And it, it was, I'll tell you more about some of it in a minute, but it was just an incredible spiritual blessing. But one of the greatest blessings to me personally was a, a, a guy 
named Cody Nelms, who had grown up at University Church in Tuscaloosa when, when, when I was campus member. He was just a little kid, eight, nine years old. And he came up to me in the middle of it. He said, buddy, there's a story you told that changed my life. I've told this story years ago here. I hadn't told it in a long time. And it's about prayer. It's about the moment in my life when, when my relationship became personal with God. You see, guys, for so many of us, we are full of religion, but we are not full of a relationship with Jesus. We go to church, we try to do the right things, we try to go to Bible class, try to, when we, we, we got it all lined up, and that's, that's cool, but we're doing it, divorce the relationship with God, and there's no power there. Jesus was sick and tired of just religious people, and what he wanted was relationship. And here's the story I was reminded of this week. When I was a sophomore in college, I remember having an awful time at one point. I was messed up. I was hurting. I didn't understand some things. I was learning new things about God that I didn't, had never heard before. I was finding out things about me that I didn't know about. And I remember going back to the house that me and some friends rented on 13th Street in Tuscaloosa. And I, I was just sitting on my bed crying. I was just like, I can't get it together, Lord. I've tried so hard and I just cannot get it together. And over across from my bed, there was, a, there was a desk and there was a chair there. And I'd never done this before in my life, but somehow God struck me to do it. I, I just sort of got up from the bed. I walked just a few feet. It was a small little room. And I pulled the chair out from the desk and I turned it back toward the bed. And I went and I sat on the bed. And I just decided I was going to act like God was sitting in that chair. And I was going to tell him everything I thought about him. I was going to tell him everything I thought about me. Everything I didn't understand about him, everything I didn't understand about me. And man, I just cried out to God. I let it all out. I let the anger out, the hurt out, you name it, I let it out. And that moment was revolutionary in my life. Why? Because it moved it from religion to a relationship. And I challenge you this week, if you've got to be so physical in this time for this to become real, because I don't know, I'm ADD, my mind flies around. If you've got to be so, go get a room and pull you a chair out and you pull your chair up and you let God sit in that chair because he will. Or you get in your car, your truck, and you just go ride, you know, and you, you, you invite God to sit in that seat beside you. And every day this week, have at least 15 minutes with God. And I'm going to tell you, it would change your life. Because right now, if you're like the disciples then, they know about the glory of God, they experience it in worship, but they walk outdoors like this, and they experience the difficulty and challenge of life. You will, I will. And what's going to give the power for us to make it? The power isn't come through prayer. Because let's start, let's end where we started with the Homer Simpson quotation. All the people are a mess except this one guy. That's what he said about the Bible. You think it's still true today? Absolutely. We're all a mess. I like what my friend Jeff Walling says. He said, we are such a big mess. We need a messiah. We need somebody to come to our rescue. So how are you going to make it? You're going to make it by walking with God. I'm not asking you right now to come to church. I'm asking if you're a good moral person. I'm asking you right now, are you walking with God? Are you trusting God for the steps of your life? They did this exercise at this camp Lincoln and I went to. We were so blessed to get to go there. Some friends sent us there. I could go on and on about what the experience was like, the worship, the lessons. But 
but you went on high ropes courses and low ropes courses. You went white water. I mean, but everything they would teach you these spiritual lessons. But the most meaningful moment to me is they took us out sort of the bottom of this mountain. And they, they made the fathers blindfold their sons. So you, you tied a thing around. So I tied it around Lincoln. Well, I tied it around Lincoln. And um, the first part of it, what you were to do as the father, because it was a, a mountain and trees and there were benches and there were vows. What you were to do, you're trying to make it up to the top, is what you were to do is you were to stand beside, behind him with your hands on his shoulder and you were to guide him up. So for about five minutes, you made it that way, which was pretty easy. You could direct him around trees. You could make sure he didn't run into that limb or fall down that hill. Then they changed to another phase where you couldn't touch him, but you could stand behind him and give him instructions. Lincoln, you're about to run into a tree, so stop right now. Go three feet to your left and then walk straight forward. And now, Lincoln, okay, you need to curve to the right a little bit. You're about to go down the hill, so to take five steps. And, and, and you could give him very specific instructions, but you could not touch his shoulders. And that, that was pretty good. And then they gave you a signal where you couldn't touch his shoulders and you couldn't speak. All you could do is follow him. And the point of the exercise was, at any point, he could stop and ask you directions and you could give it to him. But you couldn't give him directions unless he act, asked. And some of the counselors around were yelling things in their ears as they went. And so I get to my point, and it's time for me to stop talking. You know how hard that is. And so I, I've got to stop talking, and I've just got to follow him. And he starts going up that mountain, and he runs into a tree. And then he turns this way, and he, there's a bench, and he stumbles over it. And then he goes back the other direction, and he starts going down the hill. And some of the counselors were saying to him along the way, every about two or three minutes, when the counselors would come and say, Lincoln, you're in the lead, man. You're winning. That's all you got to say to that dude, man. He's, I mean, he's blindfolded. I mean, he is. And I'm telling you guys, we go down a hill, we go up a hill. We're going down a cliff. I'm finally in front of him, you know, scared he's fall. I mean, he is barely known. Everybody else is back on the mountain, but not me and Lincoln, though. He is going down, he's going up, he's going around. I think he's about to, I mean, he's going to, he falls down once, he has to crawl. I mean, but he's, he's winning. <laughs> he's in the lead. And on the side of one of those mountains, I just started crying. Because I thought, that's how I feel in life. I'm his daddy. I want him to lean on me. Lincoln's an awesome kid, but he's really independent. I want him to ask me. I don't want him to walk down that hill. I want him to really win. It just hit me because he, he wouldn't, not to a counselor, finally came over and basically told him to ask me. <laughs> Did he ever finally say, Dad, how did I get to the right place? But what really made me weep, well, that's not just a great picture of me and Lincoln in our relationship, and it was really, it was a revolutionary moment in our relationship. That's also the picture of me and God.
Man, I got my agenda, and I'm going, and I think I know what I'm doing, and I'm going after it. How about you? And, and, and guys, we're, we're going up the mountain and down the mountain. And how often do we really stop and ask for directions? How often do I ask God, Lord, where would you want me to go? Some of us, even our theology, we're uncomfortable with saying, God, direct me. But that's what he wants to do. Oh, life feels like you're blindfolded, but my friends, right beside you is God. And all he's waiting on is for you to ask. Just ask. Some of us are barreling through life, making all kinds of mistakes, hitting all kinds of burdens, running into tree limbs, tripping over benches, going down the wrong hill. Because we got too much pride to ask. And we think we can do it on our own. And my friends, you can't. Because you're a mess. I'm not trying to be offensive, just being truthful. I'm a mess. There's only one good guy. And here's the real cool thing. He wants to lead your life. And he's right beside you. Sometimes he's in front of you trying to keep you from falling down that mountain. Sometimes he's behind you and he's just waiting for you to say, Abba, Daddy, where do I need to go? What do I need to do? He said, buddy, but I got all kinds of doubts. I mean, God's not always done what I thought. Life's not worked out. It's not what I expected, you know. Oh, here's what you do, guys. Here's what you do. You just pray the awesome prayer in this chapter. Lord, I believe. I want to believe so bad. I need you so badly. I believe. Help my unbelief. And God says, I can deal with that, man. All I need is the, the cry of your desperateness. All I, all I need is a, a mustard seed of faith. And great things are going to happen. And so this morning, in this assembly, we come to the most powerful point of our assembly. When you could be prayed for, where you could ask. Where you could come before this church and say, guys, I've been going through life on my own and it's failing. Maybe years ago, you could cast out the demon. Maybe years ago, you were walking with God, but you got a little puffy or cocky or too busy. And you've sort of forgotten God and you've left him behind. Why don't you come today and say, man, I want God to lead my life again. And I know I'm about to walk out these doors, and normally by the time I get home, I start cussing. Or by the time I get to work, I've got a terrible attitude. Or by the time I have to deal with my wife, it's just not pretty. Or I don't know what in the world to do with my children. God, I believe, please, if you can, I believe, help my unbelief. And before you walk out of this place today, we can talk to a God who loves you. He wants to guide you to glory. If you need to come, why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?